You know, it's too bad we don't have a song. You know, I've been couples say, hey, honey, they're playing our song. I mean, really, oh, it's gosh, too bad. Oh, gosh, I can't believe you forgot. What are you talking about? You're saying we have a song? Yes, we have a song. You're kidding You me. big lug, you're going to break my heart. You call me a big lug? Yeah. Hey, why don't we try that bit, you know, that uh, signaling to the band. What? You know? Hey, it works in the movies. Guys, hit it. Ladies, gents, and hotshot pilots, welcome to Ramblin', an Amblin' podcast, the podcast where we act as your ethereal guide through the rich canopy of Amblin' entertainment. I am one half of your high-flying host, Andy Godian. And I'm the other half, Joshua Glenn. And you join us for a very special episode of Ramblin' and Amblin' podcast, because this is the first one we're recording live. It was <laughs> <laughs> weird being in this it feels very I don't weird. quite know where to look. I feel like I should put a frame around <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> I'm looking you right in the eyes now. It's telling you. Yeah, this is nice. This is how people used to do it. This is how people used it. I mean, this is how we started doing these sort of things. This is mm-hmm. the closest this has felt like it's come <laughs> so to staring you straight in the eyes and not blinking. Look at me when I'm talking to you, boy. <laughs> it's nice to be here. It is. And I'd say it's a, like the first time it's felt like an actual radio production. Yeah. Like, like we're back in the raw 1251 AM studio yeah, and not your dining room. <laughs> <laughs> You also join us for a special time because we're recording pretty much straight after we've watched this week's film and yeah. and the day after Joshua Glenn's birthday. So <laughs> I'm sure everyone listening would join me in wishing Joshua Glenn a very happy birthday. Thank you very yeah. much. If we sound a bit croaky, it's because we were, you know, painting the town red last night, yes. tearing it up. <laughs> <laughs> Being uh, absolutely uh, seeing in 29 in the most mature way possible, I'm sure. <laughs> There's only one photo we took of last night, and it's me with a two little circular balloons and one long, you know, mm-hmm. tubulous sort of balloon yes. holding that against my crotch. And I am a man that tied those balloons together. (laughs) (laughs) You knew exactly what I was going to do with those balloons. Yes, I did. (laughs) And I I will always know what to do with those balloons. (laughs) Start as you mean to go on. (laughs) Speaking of always. (laughs) Elegantly done. Thank you. (laughs) I'll shoehorn where I can. (laughs) Um, we are, of course, here for our episode on our last film of the 80s. Ooh, 18 has flown by. It has. <laughs> Is that also a joke on the film, staying fly by? Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what else was in 89? I've already forgotten. Dad. Dad was 89. Uh, Back to the Back Future Part, part two. 2. That's a pretty good 89. I think it is just, well, one of those films is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been judging that, listeners. Indeed. 
We are here for the last film of 89, the last Amblin film of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg's Always. Um, his second film of 1989, after the release of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade uh-huh. in that summer. So this is one of the classic Spielberg tours in yeah. the year. <laughs> I wish we were talking about that film instead. Do you want to talk about Last Crusade? I, I, it's going to come up a lot, I feel. Sure, <laughs> Um, but for, for people who aren't so au fait with Always, Joshua Glenn, mm-hmm. please let us in on what Always is. Oh, so always. Uh, Richard Dreyfus plays Pete Sandich, an aerial firefighter whose hot-headed risk-taking causes many sleepless nights for both his girlfriend, Dorinda Durston, played by Holly Hunter, and best friend, Al Yaki. Played by John Goodman. Even the names of the characters are normally. Oh, yucky. <laughs> After a job that skirts too closely to fatality, Al suggests that Pete changes career paths and accepts a safer job training firefight- firefighting pilots in Flat Rock, Colorado. Pete initially refuses, obviously, but when Dorinda emphatically pleads with him to reconsider, he decides to relent. Unfortunately, as it leads to the rest of the movie, Pete first flies one last mission, which obviously kills him. But this isn't the end of Pete. Pete go boom. <laughs> Pete, do, Pete do indeed go boom. <laughs> this isn't the end of Pete, unfortunately. As he comes to his, uh, as he comes to in his new spectral form, he meets Hap, played by Audrey Hepburn in what is sadly a final screen role. She explains to him that firstly he's dead, and secondly he ha- uh, now has a new purpose to provide spiritus. Or she has a weird, she has a different pronunciation of that in the movie, right? Yeah, I, forget I just don't know if it. that's just down to Audrey Hepburn's line <laughs> reading sometimes. <laughs> you must provide spiritus, <laughs> aka those. I don't even know what that was an impression of. Aka the divine breath to help guide people in the mortal realm. This is apparently something that spirits had previously been doing for him during his lifetime. Or whatever. Anyway, he's assigned to this guy Ted Baker, played by Brad Johnson, who is currently training to be a firefighter pilot at the place in Colorado where Al wanted Pete to go when he was a living person. As time passes and Dorinda, who followed Al to the flight school in an attempt to get over Pete's death, starts to heal and move on, a romance starts to blossom between her and Ted. This makes Pete one unhappy ghost, and he does a couple of mild little you know, shenanigans to sabotage the relationship. However, Hap reminds him that he's dead, and he must honour his duty to inspire Ted and, while he's at it, bid Dorinda farewell. Can Pete get over his pettiness and be a good ghost? Can Ted be the pilot that he needs to be? Can Dorinda find true happiness? Does anybody care? <laughs> I really love that it just boils down to believe. Like, can you be a good ghost? <laughs> Barely is the answer to that. Such a knob. <laughs> I like this. It's got this is bleeding through, uh, coming from like a really fresh screening and just going like. Whoa. It's quite exciting. Kern is so close. It is. First screenings of the films. I mean, it's the first, like we said, it's the first time we've done it. Right? We've literally kind of dived straight. Yeah. In. It's certainly the first time I've done it. I, I usually have like a day or two Same. breather. You want to let it marinate? Go over your viewing notes. You this know. is the marination. This period. is the marination. It's happening so, live. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm about to see the <laughs> <laughs> um, as I said, this is the second film of 89 that Spielberg did. Mm-hmm. Um, the first being Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So I feel like Always is a film that one often gets forgotten as another film that he made in 1989. And just generally in the grand scheme of uh, the, the Beard's filmography, this is not one 
as a uh, guest last week, Dan Kelly said, uh, if anyone says <laughs> always is their favorite Spielberg film, um, it, you, you'd be surprised. And uh, maybe with a furrowed eyebrow worrying <laughs> about <laughs> the makeup of this person. I distrust that person immensely. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I think it's a similar thing for you. This is one of the last like Spielberg films mm. I had to fill in as a gap for yeah. the filmography. So it's only the second time I've seen it. Yeah. Um, yeah. First time I saw it was only about two years ago, maybe even yeah, about two years ago. So even <laughs> they're quite fresh back to back viewings in in the grand scheme. <laughs> yeah, about a similar sort of time frame for you. Similarish. I, I was um, back in. The Halcyon days of lockdown one, I was uh, furloughed for a few weeks, a couple of months in the end. And one of my obsessions was to, oh, it, was, it was quite, I had a lot of free time. And I just, <laughs> this was back in peak, <laughs> not leaving the house lockdown. So I obsessively combed through the various streaming services that I was subscribed to and made a list, like an itemized list of, by director of what films are on there. And uh, I worked through a few of the Berg blind spots. Uh, and this was one of the remaining ones. So I watched this about a year and a half ago. Yeah. I think so it's cool. also very fresh. So very, 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 very fresh. <laughs> and, um, made quite the impact on me back then. <laughs> I, I have always had it as like a sick date edition to be like, yeah. oh, I'll fill in a gap on a sick day. And it, yeah. this was a sick day in 2019 that I filled in. You always get it has a sick day quality to it. It does. So. It's got like it, quite a dreamlike quality mm-hmm. to it. That like. Almost quite feverish. Yeah, <laughs> makes me feel sick. <laughs> uh, so I, as the kind of Amblin brand goes, this is not one that's seeped in nostalgia for either of us, and is something that we're both coming to it quite like a fairly fresh, yeah. uh, slightly like jaded perspective. <laughs> it really feels like one of those completest viewings. It does. It does because it like even kind of coming off a. Uh, in his overall filmography, it's coming quite close to mm. Color Purple and Empire of the Sun, particularly. This feels like the kind of uh, growing pain, the the capper of Spielberg's Growing Pains trilogy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah pretty much does. He attempted recalibration to yeah. to get those plaudits, the elusive plaudits. He's got to kind of work out what sort of uh, what Spielberg is yeah. an adult director looks and sounds like yeah and he's kind of feeling in a lot of different areas it goes to like prestige drama with the color purple and kind of again a similar sort of vein with empire to some david lee yeah with something that feels like a bit more closer to him as a filmmaker yeah (laughs) and then this one kind of is born out of a i i guess kind of like a similar Mm. affection so like if empire to some is born out of a love of David Lean. This is born out of a quite literally born out of a love yeah. of 1940s cinema. For uh, always is a remake of uh, the Victor Fleming 1943 wartime fantasy romance. A guy that named Joe, <laughs> <laughs> written by Dalton Trombone, starring Spencer Tracy, Irene Dunn, and Van Jansen in one of his first major roles. And this was a film that I watched to add a bit of contextualization. Yeah. Um, and watching Always just now, I kind of had forgotten even from the gap of watching it Always for the first time and then watching The Guy Named Joe, just how much is kind of, it is very similar. Oh, really? Like, yeah, quite a lot they of lift raw beats. dialogue or... Yeah, there's like particularly, uh, and we'll get to it, a lot of the kind of like 
speechifying uh, that the character does is yeah. quite closely hewn to a lot of the Spencer Tracy lines. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, the key difference being between the two, um, a guy named Joe is set in uh, World War Two. Um, Pete, who Tracy plays, is flying uh, bomber planes out of England across Europe and kind of taking out supply runs of the uh, that the Germans are trying to launch and um so the key difference being with always is that it's contemporizing it and removing it from a war wartime scenario to and then transplanting it into aerial firefighters and there's a lot a a lot of that kind of like self-referential uh nature baked into always itself because there's a lot of lines that it's just like we're not in wartime anymore boys Uh, the, that film itself is something I found a bit of a kind of a bang average <laughs> 1940s wartime drama that has, it kind of feels a bit more unique because it has that hint of surrealism and it is quite, because it's quite a strange idea and it's something that you yeah. think Frank Capra would maybe do, maybe not a Victor Fleming picture. Who was sort of like one of the original journeyman directors. Yeah, I mean, he's like, one of the many on Wizard of Oz. Yeah. <laughs> he's the one whose name stuck, though. He's, uh... Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, like, and a, a big thing of when I watched it, I, I'd read a fair bit too much into it, I feel, where I read that like Spencer Tracy and Victor Fleming both didn't like Irene Dunn very much and were very mean and bullied her a lot on set to the point of tears. And then they had to, like, Take take a beat when Van Johnson was in a car crash and was recovering from injuries. Um, they t- had to take a beat to. They used that time to reshoot a lot of the film because it was apparently too obvious that they hated each other. Oh no way! Daily Zero watching, which they, makes they it did make watching that their scenes together <laughs> quite interesting because you do. And I don't know how much of it is projecting, but I was just sat there going like, "No, yeah, you don't like each other." <laughs> <laughs> It's a real shame. In my head, maybe it's because I love um, Bad Day at Black Rock so much, but I really yeah. want to view Spencer Tracy as a nice guy. Mm. But on that, that evidence. <laughs> sound like a good dude. Um, so, so yeah, that like that immediately kind of made me very cold to Pete, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is something that will be quite interesting to transplant to this yeah. one. Yeah. Um, so, so while I may have been a little cold on the guy named Joe, not a guy named Joe in that, like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> is that an expression the guy named I mean, it's, it's an American it's a term that I think British kids use for um, what American oh. pilots like, are coming in and out of the country so it does make sense it's just, <laughs> they just don't make enough of a thing a bit for it to... <laughs> um, but whilst I may have been a bit cold on it for one Steven Spielberg it was one of his favourite films as a child and one of the v- films that inspired him to be a filmmaker in the first place. Mm. And yet he said it's only one of two films in his whole life that has ever made him cry. What, the other being ETA? No, the other being Bambi. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's okay to cry at your own film? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, let's, let's get a bit self-indulgent now. For my parents, uh, maybe it was a I forget what it was. It was about 10 or so years ago when I was living at home. For one of their, maybe it was a big anniversary of theirs, but I um, transferred all the old home video cassettes onto DVD. And I did a little bit of a copula and read it. I did a redux, read it all. And there was one bit 
I, 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 I cut like a montage at the end of one of them with this diegetic song over the top of it and I made myself cry when I was editing that. <laughs> Can you remember so, what the song was? Yeah, it was... Um, because what it was, yeah, it was, what were they singing? You know, at graduation, there was a choir singing. <laughs> it was that sound. It was a sound from that. And I sort of, I'd, I'd, I'd cut over the top of that. I'd been like a montage of me and my sister in various stages of our lives <laughs> growing up. Brown, I, may, uh, brown Eyes Blue. Maybe. I forget who sings that. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So that you yeah. can make yourself cry <laughs> <driving. laughs> in your own editing bed. Maybe you've just got to be a bit of a wanker. <laughs> but for Spielberg, I don't know. I wonder to this day whether the two films that he's cried at are just the guy named the guy named Joe and Bambi. I wonder yeah. if anything else has clocked in. <laughs> sure. And a, a remake of a guy named Joe was uh, something that Spielberg had had in the back of his mind for a very long time. Before it gets to 1989 um so so much so that he um reportedly shared an affection with of the film with richard dreyfus mm-hmm. who of course would go on to star and had been his star of jaws and close encounters earlier in the 70s and the, the two would apparently trade quotes from joe on the set of jaws and made made a promise there and then that they would re- remake it together one day i, I can't imagine what quotes they're pulling out yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. there's something about like uh he'd need a parachute if he was walking upstairs and going to the bathroom and there's something like that uh, i imagine those are the sort of yeah. things that they were throwing out at each yeah. other <laughs> uh, i had a lot of false starts said spielberg but i think it all came down to the fact that i wasn't ready to make it which would lead into my hypothesis of the growing pains trilogy mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> If I'd made it in 1980, I think I, it would have been more of a comedy. I'd have hidden all of the deep feelings, said Spielberg at the time. So coming off of those more adult ventures, Colour Purple and Empire of the Sun, Spielberg felt more prepared to make something more unapologetically romantic. A romance for grown-ups. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On scripting duties, Spielberg had hired Diane Thomas back in the mid-80s as he started to develop the project slowly but surely. Uh, Thomas was the writer behind Robert Zemeckis' Romance in the Stone and had also worked on an early draft of The Last Crusade, um, released in the May 89, seven mm-hmm. months before always. But uh, sadly, Thomas tragically died in a car crash in October 85 whilst working on both Always and the Indiana Jones script. Uh, if you've ever heard of that Indiana Jones draft that has a haunted mansion at the start, which apparently is being bled into the Mangold one that they're making. So Diane Thomas's work on the Indiana Jones franchise will come to bear. So oh, fruit, hopefully. Um, ghosts and ghouls. Ghosts and ghouls. <laughs> hopefully not. Richard Draper's ghost. She's an asshole. Imagine. Asshole ghost. Yeah, good ghost, yeah. <laughs> uh, so Spielberg's friend Jerry Belson, a veteran 60s TV comedy variety shows like The Dick Van Dyke Show, and had also done some uncredited rewrites on Close Encounters, along with contributing to scripts in the 70s for the likes of Fun with Dick and Jane and uh, 1980's Smokey and the Bandit 2, <laughs> came on board to finish the script. Uh, Casting-wise, while Dreyfus may have seen the obvious shout, having seemingly made that promise on the set of Jaws, um, I did read that Spielberg had considered Paul Newman and Robert Redford, ah. and kind of offered them both, said, one of you can play Pete, one of you can play Ted, 
but apparently neither of them could, neither of them wanted to not play Pete. Dustin Hoffman also reportedly turned it down, uh, saying in an interview with The Guardian that uh, before he finally got uh, lined up for Hook, he had said no to Spielberg on quite a few uh, occasions, this being one of them, although he didn't specify what role it was that he declined. No. I could also see him in the John Goodman role as like the best, yeah. the best pal. I almost feel like you need a Hoffman... Oh, I guess we can get into this more later on. But I always feel like the Hoffman quality would make Pete a bit more palatable. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think like so. Kind of schlubby, slouchy. And, but anyway, we can, we can delve into this. Uh, momentarily. Uh, Holly Hunter was cast in the role of Dorinda, and she was recently coming off of her Oscar-nominated role for Broadcast News in 1987, after also having starred in the Coen Brothers' first two movies, uh, Blood Simple and Raising Arizona, the latter of which also starred Goodman. Mm. Oh, so yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> who ha- also had at this stage was like becoming quite well known in households across America because he already had one season of uh, Roseanne under his belt. You ever watched any of that? No, no, I mean, <laughs> it's certainly hard to find the inclination to do so now. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> not something I feel like the the poorer for having not seen. No. <laughs> <laughs> And when it came to the role of Ted, the uh, good-looking uh, new hotshot in Dorinda's life, uh, Tom Cruise reportedly turned down the role. But you can see that, yeah. Yeah, 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 they, yeah. they very much make <laughs> Brad Johnson look... Brad Johnson? Or I, I, Brad I, Johnson. Yeah, it is Brad Johnson. Yeah. So they are literally casting Van Johnson just Brad. <laughs> <laughs> he's very... Yeah, he very much ends up looking like he's walked straight off a Top Gun set. Uh, for most of his runtime, like, to the point that I started to conflate scenes from Top Gun with Always as we're watching yeah. this now. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of Brad Johnson himself, uh, he's someone who I feel like he had very little acting credits beforehand. His big thing before this was he was uh, the Marlboro Man. Oh, was he? Oh, yes. <laughs> so I, he's very much like we say that kind of fitting that Van Johnson mold of giving mm. someone that, that first break because they've got that good matinee movie style yeah. to them. Uh, the good jawline for it. <laughs> and for the role of Hap, Pete's spiritual guide in the afterlife, uh, Spielberg had initially wanted to cast Sean Connery following their time together on The Last Crusade. But uh, he proved to be unavailable for the shooting schedule. Uh, I'm trying to imagine Sean Connery in that role. What you doing here, Pete? <laughs> You're dead. <laughs> You've got to be a spiritus. Give the divine breath. <laughs> so instead, failing to uh, cast Connery, um, Spielberg kind of entirely pivots his kind of casting direction and casts uh, Sean Connery's Marion, from, <laughs> if you will, from the Richard Lester film Robin and Marion. Have you ever seen that? No, no, <laughs> it's really good. It's like kind of like Robin and Marion for the prism of Romeo and Juliet. They're like eight, like a bit older because this is in the late seventies. So uh, Connery and Hepburn would have been what ooh, late forties, early fifties, and it's about like a really jaded Robin Hood and made Marion just really tired about having to run. <laughs> so yes, he casts screen icon Audrey Hepburn as Hap uh, on. As you said, what would go on to be yeah. her final film role after uh, before her death in 1993, 
and ever the saint, Hepburn donated her $1 million salary that she uh, got for the film entirely to New York City. What a woman. What a woman. Uh, the film shot from May to August 1989 uh, with the Abyss cinematographer Mikhail Solomon on lensing duty. And although this would be the only time he would work directly for Spielberg in this capacity, he would go on to shoot Arachnophobia for Frank Marshall a bit later on down the line and direct the Amblin produced A Faraway Place. More on that in 1993. <laughs> <laughs> and then even further down the line, he would come back for a lot of Amblin TV stuff, uh, particularly um, he's credited as, as a director on a couple of episodes of Band of Brothers. Damn the show. <laughs> Never seen that either. It's really good, man. Exposure of my blind spots today. <laughs> I do watch things. I've watched over 400 films this year, according to Letterboxd. Isn't that terrible? It's only November. Have you kind of tried to tally up how much time that? I don't want to. <laughs> I mean, if we're, average is what, two hours long? Yeah. So that's, you know, 800 hours. <laughs> <laughs> The film shot on location in both Montana and Washington State, standing in for Colorado. Uh, 500 residents from Libby, Montana, were recruited as extras to, uh, to act as wildland firefighters uh, in the occasion quite intense scenes of yeah. <laughs> firefighting. And uh, lots of aircraft were used across the uh, film, but namely two Douglas A-26 Invader firebombers, uh, with the aerial acrobatics performed by well-known film pilot Steve Hinton and Dennis Lynch, the owner of the A26s. So I just feel like he was like, you can hear my planes, but I'm flying. <laughs> you can my planes as long as you have me too. <laughs> That's why I, I, I really hope Dennis Lynch sounds like that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, likewise with like Color Purple and Empire of the Sun, always gets given that kind of, again, <laughs> the coveted award season friendly December release date in 1989. Um, where it was met with a pretty lukewarm commercial and c- critical reaction. It opened at number five in that week's box office, grossing $3.7 million, competing with uh, the likes of Christmas Vacation, Tango and Cash, which was also debuting that same weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can talk Tango and Cash instead. <laughs> We're a Tango and Cash podcast now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And also the war, the war of the roses, and Back to the Future Part Two was still doing the business uh, around this holiday season. And uh, although now kind of considered a modest financial success, um, when compared to other Spielberg stuff at the time, and even of today, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, weak source in terms of the, <laughs> in terms of the revenue going on to only make a seventy four point one. What was the budget? Do we know? I couldn't find a reported budget. So uh, <laughs> think of that what you will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go for a nice round 20 mil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, uh, even critics at the time kind of called it old fashioned and dated. And uh, I think it's Roger Ebert as well said it was comfortably Spielberg's worst since 1941 in the, in the early 80s. Um, which I feel like is a good bridge into... Yeah. <laughs> uh, where, where does uh, always place in the kind of... The, the Spielberg... grand The grand Spielberg filmography for you? Is it pretty... Well, it's uh, it's dead last. It's dead last. Last with a oh. bullet. But, but I have to say, that I, um, I watched it last year and I hated it. Uh, every single 
mawkish. I found it mawkish and self-satisfied and just really intolerably smug. To me, it played like everything that Spielberg's detractors accuse him of. Right, right yeah. So all in one film. So I, I, I've, uh, I've been harboring this spiky hatred for this movie for a while. Uh, I, I still don't like it. At all, really. But I think the edge has slightly been sanded off my hatred this yes. time. I found more... I think, you know, when you watch a movie, and I had a similar thing with Zemeckis' The Walk, I went in that film expecting it to be a different movie, not having seen the advert for it. So when it turned out to be this twee, sort of silly Frenchy caper... Doing a yeah. silly accent. <laughs> and like with this, I didn't realise it was going to be quite so, you know, syrupy and ladled on and cutesy. Yeah. So once you watch something again with expectations adjusted you are able to eke out more pleasures yeah so i don't like this film i think it pretty comfortably is still that i mean i I, even even 1941 i think there's more in that that i appreciate than there is in this but um there are a few things i that i savored savored maybe is a bit too strong but there are a few things i could appreciate this time yeah (laughs) it's, it's it's certainly not the one star film that i Remember it being because it's yeah. just too much fundamental craft, I think, to, to dismiss it out of hand like that. But it, it, I sort of stand by it being the embodiment of everything that I dislike from Steven Spielberg, and kind of when I see that, that is what I assume his haters see when they look at something like ET mm-hmm. and aren't moved by it. Although that seems pretty impossible. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, what about you? Yeah, I think like because when I watched it, I. I was quite pleasantly surprised by how kind of like, because it is very strange and it's like, it does have like this weird, it is very saccharine and very unapologetically cheesy. And, um, and I think like more to the point when I'd seen it without having seen guy named Joe, I appreciated it. Like I was like, Oh, it's just going for that forties thing. But then kind of now having the context of having actually seen a guy named Joe and seeing how kind of closely it does follow certain, uh, beats of it and also just certain stylings and particularly with the character of Pete mm. they do very little to actually kind of update him to be like a contemporary figure and it is such a weird it, I, I don't it, it bothered me more this time out doing it because I do quite I like quite a lot of things about this film but um, yeah. and it, it's the same issue I have with Tracy and Guy Named Joe I, I, I just struggle with Dreyfus as uh, the romantic hero lead in, in this <laughs> <laughs> being a very bad ghost. <laughs> bad, bad ghost, bad ghost. What you gonna do? Because, <laughs> like, even... The, the the runtime's almost exactly the same as a guy named Joe really? as well. That seems like a long movie for a kind of programmer from the 40s. Yeah, yeah it, it, it was long. <laughs> but it follows, like, very similar beats, and I, it kind of made me... Because this film starts in quite like a weird key, mm. I feel. Because you get like, you kind of open straight in on the action of Pete doing his scene and kind of establishing his hotshot nature. And one of the things it's better at kind of projecting than uh, a guy named Joe never even bothered with is actually showing that he himself is getting a bit shaky and a bit nervous behind the cockpit. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is something like, yeah, they just don't bother trying to do in the original. Yeah. Uh, so I appreciate that, like that kind of element to it. And then it has this sequence where, which feels like it goes on for a very long time, um, where they're kind of like in the in the bar, the, the kind of like mess hall for all these firefighter pilots, and 
it's uh, Jacinda's birthday, yeah. or he thinks it's her birthday, uh, and he buys her a dress and like kind of she seems to be the only woman there. Yeah, <laughs> and then like everybody kind of like like lines up for having a dance of her, and they do this weird kind of like forty screwball. Yeah bit of just like everyone going to wash their hands the white dress and she insists that they clean the yeah, yeah the, the soot off their bodies and hands before they dance with her and then it has that gag where it's like he's Dreyfus is holding yeah. lots of clean white towels and then cuts back to it after they've been washing and they're all yeah. completely sod black and yeah. stained and I even the way that that's kind of fr- framed and filmed the way it kind of like has that like weird kind of studio quality where the camera starts up on the crane and yeah. follows everyone in like grand movements where they're all kind of like running, doing the same action. Yeah, yeah. And it it had this very weird edge to it that like, and this happens, it kind of typifies the, this weird kind of blend of tones and styles that run through the whole thing where you do have this kind of more like old school kind of uh, what is quite outdated modes of, one filmmaking at some points and two performance style yeah and particularly the way like certain crowd scenes like that move or also dreyfus talks it like he's just still talking like a 40s yes a star and then it you have these moments where it kind of has a bit more tries to tap into like slightly more raw human Mm -hmm. drama that suddenly like clangs yeah against it in a weird way it is Um, yeah and that happens a bit later on down the line, but like that kind of weird opening into where you have this kind of like intense uh, putting out the fire moment, yeah. yeah, and then you go into this kind of like weird like forties downtime in the bar sort of vibe. Yeah, it it does typify the strange tone that this film's riding for a long for a lot of it. Yeah, <laughs> the that it's trying to straddle, but um, sort of failing, struggling. To, to, to pursue I, I i i hate that scene i really don't like that scene <laughs> the only thing i like about it is john goodman dipping a piece of fried yeah. chicken in a, in a pint of beer <laughs> it's not the dress it's the way you see me <laughs> yeah. i hate that kind of i hate that kind of cutesy bullshit and the shit-eating grins and yeah and it tries doing that whole it tries kind of backing out from it of like her having that line saying you you can't wear me all the look behind a girl pretty dress. And, and it's like, well, you, you have just, uh. <laughs> again, it's like entirely a beat and lines of dialogue that, that are pretty much yeah. lifted directly from yeah. Joe. And it, it's, it's this weird case of like where it's choosing to be incredibly, incredibly reverential to yeah. this film, which I just personally just didn't think was. Yeah. <laughs> not, not a holy grail. Yeah. But even within the, even within performances, just taking that scene alone, within performances in that scene, you have the inherent contradiction because you have these very clipped old Hollywood star, particularly Dreyfus, very clipped and very yeah. sort of mannered. And Holly Hunter occasionally has a little bit of that performance style. But then in between the moments, there are these, like her sense of humor is really quite modern feeling i think there's mm-hmm. a lot of bits of business she does in between lines and and the way that she, sort of, she contorts her face and, and noises she makes and stuff it's a, it's a weird way to describe acting <laughs> faces they pull and the noises <laughs> they make <laughs> well, she has these little grace notes in between moments that, that it's like the humanity slipping through the cracks in between yeah old hollywood cutouts almost and you feel the tension between that reverence for the old school and spielberg's messy humanism coming through mm-hmm. 
Like, we, we always talk about how in like ET and Close Encounters, the humor that he's really good at is the behavioral stuff. Yeah. He's not very good at staging comic set pieces or doing bits or gags. He's good at also happens in here letting those lot. little things <laughs> rise to the top. And I think that happens the best with Holly Hunter when those moments Definitely. do slip through. And particularly in that scene, there's a She's few little bits that are very funny. Not, yeah, think. exactly. <laughs> but there's such a tension there. It's mm-hmm. such a weird... They're few and far between because they're being forced into this weird misplaced reverence for a yeah you know. and like it's it's the fact that like those it's not a kind of tone that's sustained throughout the whole thing it like it careens off of that into yeah. something a bit more yeah. contemporary feeling at times and then also has this these moments of like kind of strange capper-esque surrealism so you have this beat where richard Dreyfus's character dies saving john goodman's mm-hmm. character from um his engine blowing up um, and in doing so, his engine blows up and, mm-hmm. he, and he dies instead. And it wakes up in this uh, charred forest that has this one patch of green and then your, your godlike ethereal presence mm-hmm. of Audrey Hepburn arrives. Uh, which I thought was a, like, as an image, it's it's a, it's quite, a, it's a, again, a, a point where it departs from the remake to uh, from the original. original to kind of establish its own visual identity yeah and it like there's a lot of stuff in here like particularly in terms of color and lighting that i think lighting in particular yeah, yeah. like yeah. there's this eerie blue glow that kind of signifies moments of danger and yeah like his particularly around his impending death you see yeah. his plane in the blue yeah and then you see him when he opens the fridge one night the night before his yes because she's sitting by the fire blue. and she's got a nice warm orange and yeah. red glow and he's got that cold frigid there's blue. a lot of that like both kind of you see it in a lot of spielberg stuff yeah and also just a quite a good testament to solomon's work on this as well yeah that has yeah it is like quite like elemental colors yeah but in a very bright and quite surreal yeah way that meant like the whole thing like even like even in its moments where like maybe the kind of tone isn't working it still is incredibly yeah colorful and yeah like vibrant film it looks gorgeous yeah <laughs> and that's something that i really if a film looks this good it's, i think it's really hard to dismiss yeah you, <laughs> you have to acknowledge that there's even in the scene that i just like the fireman dancing scene which mm. is interminable in length but there's the bit when she's being surrounded by the, the freshly cleaned fireman mm-hmm. and dreyfus's pete He's on the top of the stairs looking down and there's this gorgeous wide shot and you see him in the top left of the frame looking down on the action that he is removed from as a physical specimen but also as a character. Like he's Because yeah. he struggles to be upfront with his emotions with her. It's like he's hiding behind this little sarky veneer because mm-hmm. he never tells her he loves her in life and the one time he does he's cut off by the propellers that are yeah. going. And it's such a great visual representation of a guy who's sort of uh, I don't know a walking ghost in this relationship because it's, yeah. not, it's not really present there and he's unable to really be present in the way that they are because he's removing himself like a sort of defense mechanism maybe either it's a really good show is a, a, a shot that almost almost brought that scene yeah out and of that, the doldrums. again also with the color because they're all in these like yeah, 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 yeah. vivid yellow uh fireman jackets yeah that kind of go from being scruffy and looking and then it almost looks like they're wearing big like suits <laughs> yeah. but it's still just the big yellow jackets it's a nice touch yeah. within a again within a scene that I don't think really works but no. it's a nice visual touch yeah <laughs> yeah it really is it really so you have that to cling on to yeah how do you feel about like the afterlife uh, or at least the kind of point of 
point of meeting with Hap. Mm. What, what are your impressions of that space? Well, we're having this conversation. Yeah, it looks. It looks. I think it's a good. It's a good sort of simple, uh, visual way to. I mean, it's, it's, it's nothing if not a very very succinct visual storytelling. It's a really yeah. good, smart way to do it. And I, I just think so much Spot of a green and amongst yeah. the black charred remains of the forest. <laughs> I just think just the casting of Pepin alone does so much work. It's mm. mad to think that that. That it was maybe going to be Connery. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're having this conversation the other day and saying that when I saw Always last year, I thought, God, I can't believe that she was in a film as as quote unquote modern as Always in '89 because I always see her as a much, much, much yeah. more old Hollywood. But then again, by the same token, Breakfast at Tiffany's was only 25, 26 years prior to this, which mm-hmm. applying that to our standards, that would be something like Mission Impossible One. So it's not really that much. So I. It, it, yeah, I always see it as this otherworldly sort of spectral figure. Yeah, and it's, it, it was. Um, she she does bring that ethereal quality to it. Mm-hmm. This otherworldly uh, iconography. Well, um, what do you think of the general idea of like this, the afterlife in, the, in this <laughs> in this universe? The, the afterlife is a place where, when you die, you are then chosen to then put inspiration and guide people in your chosen field i'm just like so when we die are we just going to be like there's this young podcaster who doesn't know how to use audacity yet. <laughs> or we can help them make lists on letterbox yeah we're just like oh are you sure you want to give that three and a half <laughs> <laughs> jesus it is odd it's it an is. odd premise for a movie yeah, because like in the in the guy named Joe, the the way that's kind of visualized is like the it's a kind of very standard sort of depiction on a visual level because you have like this mm-hmm. kind of misty, uh, misty sparse landscape that kind of there's a random office in the middle of this like mist covered studio space basically. Yeah, and in the office it, it's just like it's a colonel there giving yeah. them orders again, but this time his job is to train pilots down on earth. Right, and uh, <laughs> the impression you get from it as well is, it's like this will never end. You will <laughs> succeed in your mission teaching this pilot, and then you will move on to another pilot, <laughs> and it will never end. <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite a macabre. It's no escape, even in death. Yeah, <laughs> for a character who's already established that they didn't want to be teaching. <laughs> <laughs> But um, where I think this film's ha- like does have its heart in the right place mm. in, in in some way is this kind of because it becomes about this you catch up with uh, Al and Dorinda a year after um, Pete Pete's death yeah um, and where he's guiding Ted and Ted comes back into the, the lives of Al and Dorinda mm-hmm. and um, you then get this burgeoning romance between. Ted and Dorinda, much to, like you said, to Pete's uh, chagrin. Yeah, chagrin. <laughs> um, and there, that, that's where this tension starts forming again, where mm. it goes from having something that feels old-fashioned to that contemporary edginess. Yeah, yeah. There's that one scene, particularly where John Goodman meets up with Holly Hunter again. Yeah. And um, is kind of upset by the way she's kind of 
shut off and it's it's a really like intensely yeah. performed I'm a Central Yeah. He's shouting really like quite yeah. aggressively and then she's just kind of like breaking down yeah. in nervous tears and what have you and it's like, Where's this coming yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is after they watched the SNL sketch of Dan Aykroyd yeah. playing uh, Julian Charles. <laughs> I, I I wish that, that I wanted to do that entire yeah, sketch. It sketch. Yeah, it's it did hold on it for quite a while. But yeah, it's like that again, and that, that's more the kind of like overt example of what you're saying with these mm. kind of like the messier human elements yeah. that he does like kind of comes through. Yeah. That is kind of one of the scenes where it feels the most jarring, but also kind of like grabs your attention yeah. more again. Yeah. Where you're sure. like, oh, this film's trying to say something about grief here. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on and what have you. Yeah. Uh, but then it, it feels at odds again in the kind of... Um, means that the manner in which Pete is so kind of rigid and standoffish and like, yeah, I'm not going to get my girl. See, you're still my girl. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's lying straight out of the forties. <laughs> he even, it's a, a, a conscious acting choice on Dreyfus as well. Let's just get into Dreyfus. Let's yeah. sort of get our knives and forks out. Cause it, it, he's doing something. He, he's very much emulating that mm-hmm. old performance style, even in his gait, even in the way he sort of stands and moves, he's, because he's someone the way I always his mustache yeah, and everything. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I always see him as a very modern actor. I think I've only I mainly think of his earlier Spielberg mm. work, and he's so he's American so theme. yeah good, like sort of <laughs> almost mumblecorey in, in in his sort of yeah. performances in those. There's just something very again. I keep using the word messy, but it's the best way I think. think it's of quite what, like a nervous, yeah. like slight unhinged yeah, nature to him. Yeah. So it does feel weird when you see him kind of going for this quite yeah. Funneling all his energy into this very, very particular mm. and again very mannered style, and I just I I, I think he's intolerable from the off. I think he's <laughs> very irritating. Even even diegetically, I think if I were yeah. in this movie, I'd find him really irritating and probably be happy when he died. <laughs> all these little jokes that he does, and and sort of I, I know guys in real life that behave like that. I make little comments to themselves in a such you know just to sort of pretend they're above it all. Yeah. Stop being, a, just be in the moment, you knobhead. Stop. Oh, I don't know. And it, I, I, I do think it's I quite. I find it, and it's jarring with like the performance style that Holly Hunt is bringing, yeah. which does feel like this a bit more of a, an actor trying to make someone a bit more of a genuine character yeah. in the in this framework. And I, I do the he does feel a lot older than her as well. He I think there's about ten or fifteen her. years between the two of them. Yeah, in real life, and it. it you feel that void where it's an actress in their mid thirties and a man yeah. approaching fifty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is why it's nicer when uh, the <laughs> romance between the more age-appropriate uh, Brad Johnson starts uh, yeah. forming. Yeah, who he's a weird one as well. That is a very strange performance and a very strange writing of that character. <laughs> he's introduced as an absolute himbo, a complete doofus, an absolute moron. And then suddenly he's so capable and so charming. It's in, in, in that one seat when the, when he, um, which is a scene I quite like, when he yeah, tries to bring the bus driver, well, he does bring the bus driver back to life. He gives yeah. him first aid, and then while he's doing that, he's trying to calm the kids down in the bus. And yeah, it's quite, yeah, I think it's quite a nice little deft performance, you know, flourish that he gives yeah. it. But it is in that scene he completely changes. He goes from being this doofus to uh, very, yeah. Very and again, thing. one of these like kind of little human elements that comes through is like that. Then kind of that scene where he resuscitates a bus driver is mm. uh, um, 
preceded by a scene where they're first kind of like just having a kind of flirty small talk in a car mm. and it's him doing a John Wayne impression yeah. she gets it she exactly. doesn't know who it is yeah. Yeah. and that was apparently just something that happened between Holly Hunter oh, really? and Brad Johnson on, on yeah. set and Spielberg was like that's quite nice yeah. let's, let's just shoot that yeah. <laughs> but in that in that car scene I, I was in, I was enjoying that little back and forth why, why is this clicking in a way that none of the previous things have it's because these two people have chemistry these mm. people are, are, are operating on a similar performance level they feel like they inhabit the same space and they feel like two human beings having a connection. Not one person who's a human being or one person who's a weird 1940s automaton. <laughs> a g- 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 ghost. <laughs> it's just, it's like, oh, it's just nice to see a bit of chemistry. It's nice <laughs> to see somebody with a bit of charisma. Yeah. Two very charismatic, two, two charismatic people just having a sort of a connection that you, you can feel that seems mm. tangible. And I think I disproportionately like Fred Johnson in this because he's just a breath of fresh air <laughs> on screen after Dreyfus, but... And it, and it is again that Tom Cruise thing. He's got a slight little Tom Cruise. He does. Glint. He, he, he looks like a like a the six foot yeah. two beefier version of Tom Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> like um, a slight. Uh, I think I think he's not a good guy, but um, slight Matthew Fox quality as well. A bit of sort of Jack from Lost in there. I'm thought about Matthew of, Fox in a long time. <laughs> I think about Lost in those days. <laughs> Something that I will die on, but that's for a different podcast. Unless you want to talk about Lost. <laughs> I'll talk, we should do a Lost podcast. I mean, take it, take like one guy who's really into it and one guy who's just a bit like, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good combo there. <laughs> it may be a spousy waxing lyrical about why it's great and you're going, yeah, yeah it's all right. right. <laughs> yeah, JJ. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I'm trying to think like moments in that love story that also work for me. And mm. like, I'm trying to think more back for Pete and Dorinda and the kind of way that a lot of, because through Pete guiding Ted as a his pilot ghost teacher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pilot ghost teacher. Yeah. He also like, it's a weird case of like so many of his little personality beats kind of start bleep, like yeah. going into Ted, like little affectations or what have you. Or even kind of this weird spiritual element kind of coming more into play where their song that they had together, Smoke mm. Gets In Your Eyes, uh, kind of in, invades the scene in certain moments. Yeah. It's kind of like a slight element of predetermined universe doing weird shit sort of yeah. moment that, again, that the film bakes in quite nicely into like the love story and that kind of nature of it of being about ultimately being about mm-hmm. someone learning to kind of feel like they can not forget but come to terms with the memory of someone and move on and that is a nice idea yeah but it, it, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just not too sure <laughs> if I fully buy it through uh, Pete and Jacinda because <laughs> no. no, he's not nice he's not really that nice no, <laughs> at any point that we see them asshole. in their relationship <laughs> I think what it, it, it's it it's something to do with perspective and what you bring to a film. I think you wouldn't mind me saying that we're two very emotionally open guys. Yeah. <laughs> we, 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 we always hug on greeting each other and we often profess our love for one another. <laughs> I have no problem at all expressing my love for people, uh, you know, or, or showing affection. Uh, maybe I'm a bit too much with it, if anything. <laughs> so I just, when I have to buy into someone who is unable to be like that, 
unless the film sort of puts the work into make, help me understand that mindset, mm. I do I struggle and I bristle a little bit and think, yeah. well, just, just just be nice to her. She's a lovely girl. Just just <laughs> be nice to her. Stop being an asshole. <laughs> Open up, man. Because that, that and jumping what right back to the start again is that beat where because we're introduced to them as her. She's a flight flight controller, mm-hmm. also yeah. also a pilot. She's very capable pilot herself and um in order to kind of he comes in for a really rocky landing that um he manages to pull off and doesn't see what a big deal is that like this flight was quite a nervy one and like he doesn't understand why she's so mad yeah. at him and so to prove a point she goes up and also does this la- like <laughs> a, a, a weird landing and throws herself <coughs> around to in the sky to like drive into him what that feeling is and you think that would be enough to kind of drive it home but he still doesn't really yeah. get it for a long yeah. time <laughs> well, he is very slow on the uptake it is yeah until even when he's a ghost yeah. he's still very slow on the uptake yeah when, when, when she intended dancing in the front room and he goes wait something's fishy here what's going it's not on? the turkey <laughs> yeah and even like that even that kind of drives through to the like that moment of realization where he kind of has to be told to have the realization yeah, yeah. and then tries to palm it off it's... through the screenplay as if it was his own realization yeah absolutely and, it's like, and he's like it's okay i'm releasing you and it's like what <laughs> even to the bitter end he's a dickhead yeah <laughs> <laughs> i i also just a thought that i've had now um, why is this film not called Smoke Gets In Your Eyes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always is such a nothing of a title. Yeah. It gets said once. You just say it what yeah, yeah and you and you get that Ah yeah. It's that old family guy bit, isn't it? Yeah. I hate how often I think of Family Guy, but it was such a I watched it so much at a very formative adolescent age. It happens. I know, I know. <laughs> Um, but um, I just feel like oh, yeah. even like on the on the level of the fact that the film itself is about firefighters, yeah, absolutely, and it's going for like this old fashioned romantic yeah. drama thing. That title oh. sounds like an old fashioned romantic drama. At least oh. kind of lean into it more that way. Um, it's a nice touch as well. Irene Dunn was one of the original performers of Smoke Gets in Your was Eyes she? back in the day. In it's a gorgeous song, Roberta. isn't it? It's such yeah, a nice I love song. that song. That does a lot of the heavy lifting. It really people. does. Even the scene where she where she dances in the dress with his ghost unknowingly, uh, yeah, it, it's a really it, nice scene. Again, yeah, because it's all, <laughs> a lot of why a lot of this is affecting is Holly Hunter and the way, yeah, uh, the way she shot a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, and I, I do find the whole affectation of the sleep shopping list thing. I find that very cloying and irritating. But even still, there's that scene later on after she ghost dances with him and she's doing the shopping list thing and. His spirit is lying in bed with her, and you know, doing a call and Creepy answer with her. <laughs> but then, once she stops and she starts to sort of sleep or they respond to what he's saying, I found that very cute and very, yeah. very, very touching. So even the stuff that I found irritating in her characterization, she pulls some quite affecting little moments out of. She's just a class act, man. She's class act. She's, She's great. <laughs> um, bit of disappointment to me was um, was seeing Keith David pop up. Oh yeah, briefly. Love seeing Keith David. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just, and, and I said to you in the movie, we, we don't see enough of him, and you said that's pretty much the case in anything that he's yeah. in. That's not enough of the guy. What um, what is your favourite Keith David bit? Um, that's a good question. I'm a big fan of 
uh, I, I am a big fan of him in Community. Yeah, he's really <laughs> That's that point where he's making references like, oh, did you see that on the, uh, on the, was it, was it the TV show? I, I forget the name of the character, but she just goes, I don't have a TV. And then the shop just lingers on his stick. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. He's brilliant. He's yeah. I always the thing's hard to yeah skirt over as well. Oh, <laughs> I mean, the, the thing probably uh, the thing and Pitch Black I think probably have the most of Keith David in them. <laughs> I see what I've done here. Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, you've taken this away, haven't you? you? You've turned this into a Keith David episode. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about the opening of this. Something about Mary because he—he's so funny in that opening scene. It's absolutely incredible. When he sits down to have a look at his bolster, his zipper, and he puts his glasses on and leans in. He's <laughs> He's so funny. <laughs> oh, I completely forgot he's in that opening. Oh. <laughs> 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 he's so good. Oh god. <sighs> Sorry, I just I, I just We love you, keep David. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah. And also a very brief appearance of Robert Blossom, who's old man Molly from Indeed. Home Alone. Who, that's a weird scene as yeah, well. It's <laughs> so weird. It's so weird. Whenever, you see, whenever I see him in things, he always looks the exact same. <laughs> he's always been at it, but he's still alive now. And he's still, he just still looks like <laughs> <laughs> Always this weird old man as well. <laughs> plays weird up. When, when you've got the look, you got the look, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Do you know what his character's called? In this movie, yeah. I don't. Dave. <laughs> <laughs> disappointing, actually. I don't, yeah. I'm disappointed to find out that that's his name in this. Yeah. Uh, one of the weirder oh. sides of this, in terms of like a, a Spielberg joint. Yeah. Um, and it's something that, like, because I'd listened I'd listen to the score years before I'd ever seen mm-hmm. this film like as a kid when I was listening to all of John Williams stuff so yeah. I listened to the soundtrack for this long time before I ever saw it so I had I, and I, it was only on like a John Williams compilation CD so it would just be a suite of like themes and always yeah and the thing it kicks off with is that um, it's kind of the more kind of like spirited yarn capery sort of tune that um, uh, that uh, piece of uh, that music cue that accompanies a scene where the the follow me truck crashes into Dorinda's house and yeah and Brad Johnson just follows it on the plane and it's like why are you still following it it's clearly going the wrong way <laughs> uh, but it's like this very jaunty kind of and that was always like kind of for a while yeah. in my head what I had is this kind of like the idea of what the soundscape for this film was yeah and then when you actually see it. It's an incredibly strange. Again, I'm using strange and weird a lot for a lot of this film <laughs> yeah. because even if a lot of it doesn't work, it is strange and weird, and we always should appreciate strange and weird. Um, always, but, always. <laughs> uh, but for like a John Williams score, and particularly at this point in Spielberg's time, we kind of mm-hmm. talked a bit about how Empire of the Sun score over slightly overplaced its hand in the yeah, moment. Definitely. This is a much more kind of baked more into the side of the ethereal surrealism mm. a lot of the time because it like John Williams has only ever only ever occasionally works with synthesizers and there's a lot of synthesizers in this that kind of bleeds into the backgrounds where it just becomes yeah. this kind of vib- vibrant 
like a, a vibrating nature to the kind of more overtly spiritual moments yeah. or what have you, or and that and particularly the moment where it's kind of leading you in the final moments where Dorinda decides to steal the plane and go off on this dangerous uh, rescue mission herself rather than have um, Ted put himself in danger. Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of builds up into her her theme and in a synthesizer that then kind of comes out as a score in the, in the end. And it's this, is one of, there's another score in the 80s that John Williams did for an Andy Kaufman film called Heartbeats. 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 Heartbeats, which is about a robot that falls in love. Oh. And that is like, it's, it's, it's the weirdest like John Williams score you'll ever hear. It's a lot of just kind of, and kind of reminded me of a, a similar sort of mode that he's working with here, which I like, it's weird kind of having that preconception of what you think a film's going to sound like because of who's attached and what you've kind of yeah. heard on like other materials and then to come into the film itself and have it be this really quite different flavor of yeah. a composer that you think you know. And there, there are elements of that kind of classic Williams yeah. feel. Yeah, yeah. But it's a much weird, like, again, there's that weird, there's that word again. <laughs> yeah. It's much more of an outlier of this uh, kind of a score that isn't so much about emoting in kind of the big cues. It's about kind of building into yeah. the atmosphere in a much more subtle mm. manner in which a lot of his work and a lot of his work, particularly with Spielberg, does. Yeah, yeah. And it is interesting that there is that kind of relative restraint on that side because the performances so often are encouraged yeah. to really ladle it on. Because it doesn't come in for a long time as well, the score. No. It's quite like an open, silent, and it's, and it's not until you get the... Yeah, we, we thought the volume was turned yeah. off. <laughs> it's not until a bit later <laughs> where it first goes to a bit more of a kind of romantic push um, with the first performance of smoke gets in your eyes and then it starts coming into play a bit more yeah so it, it, it's one of the more reserved williams efforts yeah and probably one of the, the more the more underrated stuff in this thing in the grand scheme yeah is I, I would never say this is an underrated spielberg film probably i think it's probably right. fairly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but for, for williams personally it is quite an underrated yeah bit of williams work yeah <laughs> yeah because yeah he's he, he's the big Brash adventure score guys. It's nice to sort of to hear a different string to his bow. Yes. <laughs> Pardon me. I like his synthesizer stuff. <laughs> synthesizer. I, I, I just I, was, I had a brief look at this heartbeats thing. <laughs> I really, really want to see it. <laughs> me too. If the score's anything to go by, it's a hoot. <laughs> Not something I knew existed until I was going through his discography. No. <laughs> and it's directed by uh, Alan Arkush, who is a fellow who's tangentially appeared in our conversations uh, okay. with regards to Joe Dante, because they directed Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> so he has uh, a, a vague, uh, vague connection to the, the ambling tendrils going out again. <laughs> yeah. Another speaking of relative restraint, and this all has to be said, is is very relative. Something that I do appreciate is that Spielberg often will let scenes play out in full in mm. one setup. Yeah, largely. I mean, he will occasionally cut to an insert if he needs to. He's not precious about maintaining the integrity of the of the long take, but he sort of he does give the actors the space to 
sort of to build their performance in real time in the scene. And so much of the stuff, the, the monologuing that you were saying is lifted largely from a guy named yeah. Joe. So much of that is done in a one. Yeah, it is. One Which take. I do appreciate that. <laughs> and, and, and like, it's the composition of the shot. And then like you say, the color and lighting to differentiate um, Pete from, from the people on the actual reality. Yeah, rea- exactly. The, pa- the plane of reality yeah. in the, yeah. in the, Spiritual plane. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't like what Dreyfus is doing in that space. I do like the way that it's set up. Yeah, visually. I agree. It's such a, it's such a simple... And this does um, chime in with something that one of our listeners who wrote in mm. said. Um, if I can... Yeah, and Andy Peterson sent us a very a very lovely long email. Uh, big fan of this movie. And one of, he, one of the things that he pointed out was the clever tricks used in camera mm. without the aid of FX. Yeah to sort of differentiate and I completely agree I think it's a, it's a very impressive yeah because like feet. you even think yeah one year later 1990 the bit well, highest grossing film of 1990 in fact was Ghost mm-hmm. which does do the whole um, <laughs> glowy ghost <laughs> effect and a lot of walking through things and pushing things and like yeah. this has a lot of restraint in that regard yeah. in terms of like it keeps it all quite old fashioned in the yeah. camera um, and I it, yeah, part of me does appreciate the fact that there mm-hmm. is that element of restraint. Yeah. Um, and also, like, in terms of um, the flying sequences as well, I think um, they're, yes. they're very good. And yeah. Particularly the last one. Yeah. Um, where it's uh, Jacinda up in the flight and having to save some firemen that are trapped in a yeah. forest fire. Yeah. It's genuinely quite like nerd ranking yeah, because yeah. it looks like there's a genuine <laughs> there's someone genuinely flying this plane yeah. amongst burning trees I'm sure there's like there are elements of miniatures and compositions yeah, no here and there and everywhere but um, that that was a very impressive sequence it's pretty seamless like the, yeah. the rear projection or whatever probably not rear projection the, 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 the green screen or whatever they do to create the backgrounds they very much you don't see the seams really it yeah. doesn't look anywhere near as naff as I thought it would have mm. you really do it feels of a piece with itself. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's impressive. I think that's one of the like elements that kind of like really muscles it up from the original because the original yeah. was a lot of like little miniatures going on, a, <laughs> yeah. on a kind of Playmobil um, yeah. models. <laughs> <laughs> it's really about I, I watched a, a few of the old um, British speaky, talky Hitchcock films. Yeah, during one of the previous lockdowns, and there's so many times it like it'll sort of pull back to a, a wide establishing shot. And it is just toys, and they use little miniature figures to represent the actors yeah. in the scene. And it's so funny to go from like a, a, a two shot of dialogue, sort of talking actors, and you pull back to this this wide shot, and you see two little action figures positioned <laughs> next to a train. <laughs> I love how much like that keeps going for like a long time in cinema. Like there's James Bond films in the seventies that are still pulling that shit. <laughs> as soon as you as soon as you have to include a human character in one of those model shots, it's just. <laughs> But yeah, but and the, and the on the ground stuff as well. The, the guys in the yeah, city yeah. of fire. I was watching. How th- that is real? This is real. <laughs> this is incredible. It pairs quite nicely with. Uh, uh, let me remind myself of the cinematographer's name, Mikael Solomon's mm-hmm. uh, other film of '89, which is The Abyss, which is a very yes. water element based film, and then this is like yeah, the, the complete anti like on the other other end of the scale. <laughs> It's a it's a very good like I I'm not he's not a cinematographer I'm that familiar with despite no. having seen 
unknowingly seen a few a few bits and pieces of what he's done but uh, it's a yeah it's a, the thing i keep coming back to with this is that there it, it is it, it's an incredibly nice screen scene <laughs> yeah a lot of the way it's uh, framing its shots and using color in particular yeah <laughs> yeah no definitely um i've never seen the abyss You've would you I said pronounced it very weird. The, the, the obvious. <laughs> Would you recommend starting with the theatrical cut or the director's cut? That's a good question. Because it's tough with because the director's cut generally the alien director the aliens director's cut is the preferable one. Yeah, too. and the abyss extended cut is better. Yeah, mm. we'll go for that. Yeah. <laughs> You'll never know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that's that's that, that's kind of what did. Um, Soften me on this film the most. Yeah. I think is the visuals because it is such a such a, a pretty movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, something that kind of like Andy brought up in his letter to us was a lot about mm. the way it looks and yeah. the way it feels and like. And whilst it might not be like kind of a nostalgia button for us, it does sound like it is particularly for him because he Definitely. made a, he made a point of saying how. He saw it in the cinema yeah. quite a few times as well when he was when when he was fourteen, and it, it really capturing the look and feel yeah. of his youth at the time he spent out in Montana and Idaho. And I, yeah. I, I am because uh, I, ca- I I can appreciate how having a film look the way this does can yeah. be really evocative. Oh, for sure of that kind of time in in your life. And yeah, I, I imagine this would would look great, particularly as well. On thirty-five mil back oh, in the day bet, yeah. in the cinema, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was a yeah a lovely note that he sent to us, and it's a really nice. Much as I, I this, this is not a podcast to shot on stuff. Much as I have shot on this, <laughs> it's not something that I I sort of I will never uh, insist on something being bad if somebody likes it, and it's lovely to hear that Andy has this connection. Yeah, Andy. Peterson, not the Andy yeah. that's currently sitting not across not from Andy. <laughs> <laughs> has this connection. Uh, it's it's really nice to hear that. Mm-hmm. And there is that, especially he mentions um, uh, seeing it as a lovesick teenager and how mm-hmm. he kind of plays into those feelings as sort of pangs of romantic longing. I mean, particularly like in that attachment of a, for a song as well to yeah. that kind of pang as yeah. well because it's very. You, yeah, I think I'm sure we could think of examples of like when we we were younger and like associating oh, certain songs with certain feelings. The the the, the, well, the movie that's my equivalent of this is Adventureland. Right, like whenever I watch that and Satellite of Love, the way that's used in that film as yeah. well. I, I don't think there's anybody in particular that it reminds me of, but that the, the feeling that it captures of sort of sort of endless lazy summers. Big Minds Garden State sounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then movies that you might cling on to uh, almost stubbornly against the larger critical consensus, yeah. perhaps. But as know. I will do for Garden State, <laughs> <laughs> not watched Adventureland for a long time, but I imagine it's probably not. Might be okay. It might be okay. I hope so. <laughs> um, yeah, something slightly less favorable, shall we say? In, in terms yeah, we of had like responses. It was nice to get two men. Yeah, yeah. This film. I was quite surprised. With yeah, that. and there were, like, quite... another one that. I never really hear anyone talk about it, but yeah, but yeah, it's you, certainly you put the feeler out. You get two emails. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we got an email from Val who uh, who was not quite as taken with it. She was saying, I, I, no. I plucked out a quote from his email. Um, Always as truly as an oddball in Spielberg's filmography. Remake of a guy named Joe. Spielberg's romantic film is such a limp and forgettable film. <laughs> Dreyfus, Hunter, and Goodman work well together and do their best, but Spielberg's pet project is both dull in its look and story. 
Not to mention slow in pacing. And this is something that I hadn't seen in my research for this, but reportedly, Val says, Joe Esterhaz was close to writing the adaptation a few years before the eventual film was released. The writer of Basic Instinct, working with Steven Spielberg. Can you imagine such a thing? What would that film have been? (laughs) Absolutely. Do you think it would have just made Pete more of a creepy ghost? (laughs) (laughs) You'd have gotten much more of a sense of cocaine, I think. (laughs) (laughs) God, I love Basic Instinct. It's such a good movie. Honestly, Paul Verhoeven's always. Yes. Assume we're not going to be able to cover any Paul Verhoeven films in our, in our, not in this, no. In this podcast. Maybe I, I'll, he's I'll, not. He's not. Yeah, he's not someone you'd immediately think. Did he do an Amblin? No. <laughs> <laughs> What's his softest movie? Probably Total Recall. <sighs> still pretty. It's still pretty. Yeah. <laughs> but it probably is. <laughs> <laughs> well, our, our sequel series in about ten years' time will be. Pick a studio that he has collaborated yeah. with. <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> <sighs> but yeah, I mean, I, 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 maybe you can tell from my uh, diverging tactics that I don't really have anything else to say on the matter. <laughs> I, I actually, I have said more nice things than I expected to, so I'm pleased. Yeah, I, know, I, I do. I don't. I'm trying to think if I. I don't think I. Put, I think I prefer this to 1941 mm. still. Even if, like again, I feel like that film weirdly has a shadow on this in some moments, particularly yeah. in the kind of broader physical comedy Definitely. elements. The there's, firemen rushing out to to wash their hands. Yeah, and certainly. then there's there's the weird scene where Ted and uh, Al first meet, and he's got oil on his oh, hands, yeah. and, <laughs> and everyone's like, a moron for some yeah. reason. <laughs> yeah, again, it it feel it does feel born out of this kind of. I my my issue with it is like this is clearly a long-laboured passion project mm-hmm. as Val uh, said in that email as well for Spielberg and I wonder if it's like it's that sort of idea is like should you ever remake something that you like genuinely love yes because like it mm-hmm. kind of ends up in this weird place where you you're maybe a bit too beholden or a bit too Definitely. indulgent on certain elements yeah. that you feel like because you love it so much yeah. you can't really yeah. Yeah. wrangle and change the change these elements like yeah. a film that I think is better but I think suffers a similar problem as Peter Jackson's King yes, Kong yes exactly <laughs> that is the big gorilla in the room isn't it yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly which I think really does like have a similar sort of issues to this where yeah. it's just so like oh my god I've got to make my thing that I love and have yeah. been wanting to make for a long time yeah but I also think Doom suffers from a similar issue on the terms of like it's kind of faithfulness to its material in terms of because you said to me um i mean i I liked it much more than you but one thing you said i i I understand is that it almost is insisting itself as being the definitive version yeah which is true of king exciting (laughs) (laughs) oh well well, 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 for me (laughs) my heart was pumping during the attack on house atreides yes yes (laughs) you nailed it i keep calling them like oh yeah whatever 
struggled. So I'm, I'm bad with names. So often in this podcast, I'll refer to the actor as opposed to the character they play. <laughs> yeah, because... I've, I've already like got it playing back in my head, and I've, I've swapped yeah. out Holly Hunter and Dorinda so many times. I keep, well, I mean, Dorinda's not a name. If your name is Dorinda, to... please email Ramblin <laughs> We'd love to talk to you. Dorinda Pete Sandwich. Again, oh, it's, yeah, a, it's yeah. a very forties name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that that, that kind of sums up always mm. for me. It's like I appreciate it. it's this kind of labor of love, and when it opens itself up to be more of its own thing by either letting the mess in or yeah. by just its very nature of being shot very well by a filmmaker who knows yeah. how to um, direct to particularly with like I mean light light is always such a big thing in Spielberg's yeah films as a signifier of fear or death or something to like even like you think of just like even like close encounters in Jurassic Park mm-hmm. and Jaws they always always use like exposure of light as a yeah. tool to not so much to reveal but also to frighten in a weird way yeah. and this film does kind of add into that same sort of DNA of him as a filmmaker using light and means that aren't yeah. always comforting but yeah. quite affecting and weirdly <laughs> I think it is a play of light particularly when he starts working with Janusz Kaminski in his sort yeah. of later post 9-11 choice early, early who I never appreciated until now was married to Holly Hunter for a while oh <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that run of films that sort of really um, the adult sci-fi onwards and, and also through Munich and all of those like Body of Spies Bridge of Spies rather that those that to me is his perfection of the adult film that he struggled to make in the eighties. Yeah, I think that's where he find, he really finds the. That's when he gets it and, and the guy. Yeah, to... and it's, it's just the look and feel like they have such a, a vividly different uh, texture to yeah. these, and, and it is like it's the like I say the play of light that Kaminsky's very good at. Mm-hmm. They're like they're really, uh, I guess, overexposing it and then pulling the light from the scene and yeah. And making it feel alien and, mm-hmm. and and threatening. Salman gets closer though. This is mm. like, I yeah, think yeah. maybe the closest because Alan Davio is quite good at the warm kind mm. of feeling that is baked into a lot of these early Spielbergs. Yeah, but sure, this sure. this feels like the closest signpost to where he does end up kind of evolving his visual look. Yeah, like with Alex Kaminsky, like you say. So yeah, there's it. <laughs> Definitely for like you like you said at the top, this is the a, a completest film. But um, I'm now kind of convincing myself that it is actually a lot more interesting in his, uh, <laughs> in his grand scheme of a as a filmmaker. And I think it's like because it is you you can really take that self-contained adult Amblin trilogy mm-hmm. of Color Purple Empire and this yeah. and see it as see it as a really interesting look at a guy trying to figure it, figure himself out as a filmmaker a bit more. Yeah. With Indiana Jones pe- peppered in between. <laughs> yeah. That's sort of an easy, an easy fallback on to sort of get your mojo back. Yeah. <laughs> and then, oh, but yeah, but then it's, it's follow up to this is Hook, right? That's the next. Yeah, I think so. This is, this is the fallow. This, this, uh, the sort of mid to late eight, the mid to late eighties up until you know, 1993 is yeah. my least favorite part of his career. That's the fallow period, I think. Not much. We're getting em- there. Empire of the Sun and 
Plus Crusader, sort of two shining lights in an otherwise pretty tough no yeah. <laughs> yeah. But That's very charitable, and yeah, I, I, that's a that's a pretty good perspective to have. Mm-hmm. It's just a guy just figuring out how he's going to evolve as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. which doesn't make for particularly rewarding viewing in the moment, but it's a it's a surprisingly interesting film to talk about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's all better to talk about than to watch. And this is this is I did not think that we'd get as much juice out of this movie as we have. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy. Good job. <laughs> oh, and dear listener, um whilst this is usually the point in the episode where I tell you what mm-hmm. film we're gonna be looking at next time, we're actually gonna do things a bit differently in the next episode. We're gonna deviate from the formula. Yes. <laughs> Get excited, gang. Or not too excited. <laughs> uh, seeing as this is our last film of the decade that was the 1980s, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to, before we dive head on into the glory years that are the 90s, um, with the first film, Joe versus Volcano. More on that in the, ne- <laughs> in the next episode where you can find that. Um, we're going to be taking a, a look back over the 80s with a review of the decade mm-hmm. in our next episode where we'll be kind of discussing our favorite kind of elements taken from um, taken from charting these first collection of films and already it's been a strange wild weird bunch <laughs> of uh, films that seem to share uh, some films that share so much dna and then others that just feel <laughs> so bizarre in the grand yeah. makeup of this uh, production company but um yeah I, I look. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. We've hashed out like a yeah. list of categories. Yeah. I'm excited to hear what you bring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too, man. God damn, love making lists. <laughs> Utilizes that quality exactly to, to pleasurable effect. We'll have a good time, certainly. Absolutely. If nobody else. Does. <laughs> um, I think we, we'd also like you to get involved and uh, absolutely and, and share your and share your favorite bits from uh, the Amblin movies of the eighties, mm-hmm. wherever they may be. <laughs> yeah, fa- favorite movies, favorite performances, favorite screenplays. Yeah, uh, maybe one that you haven't watched since childhood. If if uh, if you have been watching along with us, anything that's improved the most since you last watched it, uh, anything that has gone down in your estimation <laughs> the most. Uh, yeah, do 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 shoot those our way. Tweet us at Ramblin Amblin or email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail and let us know uh, your two cents. Beautiful, and uh, yeah. I, I think I'm spent on the always. Yeah, buddy. But the you know. has got in my eyes. Gonna <laughs> <laughs> go and listen to that song. Yeah. Nice and just picture Richard Dreyfus just sat in the corner Ugh. watching you dance. Oh, my <laughs> Quite Biff Tannen energy, actually. It was my, my, girl, my girl. The birthday tradition is to rewatch Back to the Future uh, every year. So I watched it again last night for the third time this year. Yeah. <laughs> And I got real biffed. When are you going to realize, Lorraine, you're my girl? <laughs> and from uh, Richard Dreyfus in this. But it's not performance. It's not as good a performance as Tom F. Wilson's. No. <laughs> For more on that, listen to last week's episode on yeah. Back to the Future Part 2. And maybe more on the review of the 80s. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And more again in Back to the Future Part 3. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have been rambling ambling. As always. <laughs> <laughs> and we hope you enjoy you enjoyed this episode and will join us next time for our review of the 1980s. Until then, take care of each other. See you next time. We release you. <laughs>